Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. From War of the Worlds to the Martian Chronicles, the planet Mars has long held a grip on our popular imagination. But where did these early ideas about vast networks of canals and advanced and sometimes hostile civilizations come from? Professor Maria Lane of the University of New Mexico Department of Geography and Environmental Studies explores environmental knowledge claims and is particularly interested in maps, science, and stories and the roles they play in creating, challenging, or legitimizing different human environment understandings. That's why the evolution of knowledge and stories about Mars are so appealing to her. She's the author of the book Geographies of Mars, Seeing and Knowing the Red Planet. How did you get interested in Mars? I saw a big pull-out map of Mars in National Geographic, and I'd never really looked at the map of Mars before, and I was just really fascinated that many of its place names were these ancient classical names that referred to the Mediterranean Sea, that region. And I just was so curious about how those names ended up on the map, so I just started doing a little bit of research. And I was then totally surprised to find a lot of details that were actually right up my alley. I mean, I'm not really a Mars scholar, and I'll just confess, I'm not actually all that interested in Mars itself. I'm interested in Earth and in the historical geography of environmental management. And it turns out the story of those early Martian maps really is actually a story of how to manage arid landscapes right here on Earth. Oh, that's fascinating. Talk about this rush to map Mars in the 19th century. How was it done and who were the men whose versions of Mars became predominant at that time? This canal craze that emerged that started really the last decades of the 1800s and and the first decades of the 1900s, this was all based in detailed cartography that was pretty new in the, the late 19th century. So astronomers had observed Mars for centuries because, of course, it's one of the most remarkable things in our night sky. It's red. It's fairly bright. It moves around among the stars since it's a planet. And of course, it also has retrograde motion, which is not true for all planets. That means it doesn't just go in a straight line from night to night. At certain points when Earth and Mars pass each other in their orbits, Mars appears to reverse direction and go the wrong way for a couple weeks. So because of all that, there's a lot of mythology and interest tied up in Mars. And it had been observed forever, let's say. But in the early and mid-1800s, telescopes got better, we started to get a clearer view of the surface, like enough to see things that looked like continents, which then became enough to draw some maps, you know, not just sketches. So throughout the 1800s, the views got better, the maps got more detailed. My research really picks up the story in 1877 and 1878, uh, which is a year when Mars and Earth passed each other at a point where their orbits are very close. And that happens every 15 years or so. And there was that year a kind of a typical frenzy of observations to take advantage of that really close approach. But one map came out of that year uh, by the Italian astronomer Giovanni Schiaparelli. And his map was just really different from anything that had come before. It showed what looked like linear features all over the planet. Um, He thought they were water features put them on the map with blue shading. He called them canals. No one else saw linear features like that. But once they were on the map, it was pretty hard to unsee them. Schiaparelli had observed Mars for months that year, much longer than anyone else. He had a really powerful telescope. 
and he built his map from hundreds of sketches. So it seemed in some ways reasonable that his map had more detail than everyone else's. But, you know, the map itself kind of created its own visual authority. Like once it existed, once things were on the map, it was hard to challenge them. So anyone else's map that didn't look like that would end up getting dismissed. There was actually a second very detailed map made that year by the British astronomer Nathaniel Green, and his just looked totally different. It was done in red earth tones with this very gradual, naturalistic style of shading, but it just didn't show like the straight lines. It didn't show the hard edges. So it seemed to be less detailed and therefore less correct. I mean, how can a map with less detail be considered more correct? So there was a, a short debate that was over quickly because Schiaparelli's map became really the dominant map going forward from that year, 1878. Was he basically sitting, looking through a telescope for hours and sketching based on what he saw through the telescope? Yeah, the way it works is really interesting. When you think about how it comes out on this beautiful Mercator projection map, that's not what any astronomer ever sees in the telescope. What they see, you know, Mars is difficult to see if you're not uh, a rover with a camera six feet off the surface of the planet. So you're looking through Earth's atmosphere, you're looking across, you know, 30 plus million miles of space, and it's just hard to see. It's, it's fuzzy, right? And so what the astronomers do is they sit at the telescope and they wait for that split second when the atmosphere settles and they can get a glimpse of a fairly sharp view of the surface of Mars. When that happens, they then turn to the logbook and they sketch what they saw. And they're essentially sketching immediately from memory because the glimpse only lasts like a fraction of a second. So they do this night after night. Maybe they get a few sketches a night that they consider pretty good. At the end of the observing season, a couple months when Mars is approaching Earth and then receding from Earth when it's, you know, close enough to see it well, they would sit down and take all those views that they got, that they sketched into their logbooks, and line them up according to the exact time when they saw them so they know, you know, the motion of the planets, they know what face was turned to Earth, and then they cartographically project them. And when they did that and put all the features together that they saw night after night, it appeared as a network. You know, in Schiaparelli's map, it looked like all these linear features that intersected. And other astronomers after him saw the same thing and used that same exact method. But no one ever saw like a network of lines through the telescope and no one ever claimed that. It was just really dramatic and remarkable when it came out in the maps. Was he actually saying, when he said canals, now he's speaking in Italian, writing in Italian, did he actually mean what we're thinking about, you know, what people believed was true? There were canals built by beings, or was he talking about something else? Well, so this is one of the mysteries in the, the history of this episode. You know, he used the Italian word canali. It was translated a couple different ways in English. It could be translated as channels, which people took that to mean uh, kind of a natural feature, or as canals, which implies some kind of artificial creator. You know, it's made by intelligent beings. So Schiaparelli wrote canali, and there seems to be evidence that he really did mean canals. There's been a big debate in the 
you know, history of science literature over this whole thing happened. People started believing in intelligent beings on Mars because of a stupid mistranslation. I think that's really wrong, actually. It wasn't the translation that really caught people's attention. It was that map. That map showed those really definitive features and they had a lot of visual authority. And that map started to circulate and it, it got people's attention. You know, even backyard amateur astronomers who at that time, it was common for them to send in their observations to be cataloged. And they were like, whoa, if I want to add to the map, I have to add linear features. Everyone started looking for canals. So, you know, Schiaparelli's map kind of set off this canal hunt. Schiaparelli himself was pretty careful in his statements. I think the most he ever said was something that translates to, I'm very careful not to combat the suspicion that uh, intelligent beings exist. He never confirmed, I think there are, but he said he was very careful to not rule it out just because he thought it could be possible, as did many, let's say most people during that time. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm speaking with Professor Maria Lane with the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. She's the author of the book Geographies of Mars, Seeing and Knowing the Red Planet. Why was cartography considered an objective view? Why, why were the maps so powerful for fostering these stories? Well, thank you for asking about my favorite topic, the power, <laughs> the power of maps. When we think about cartography and specifically scientific cartography that's based in these detailed measurements like they were doing. It's just part of the bigger story of the history of science, right? Why is science so powerful? Cartography is powerful for all the same reasons. It's something you can see. It's something that the more detail that you add, the more legitimacy you have as a map maker. You know, once those canals were on the map, it was hard for people to not see them. And the game became, if you're gonna to contribute to the science, you do it by adding more features. And maps are easily legible. By that time, everyone knew how to look at a Mercator projection map. There were constantly maps coming from the colonial expeditions. And this was a really popular way of understanding places. I think what really was happening there is that you couldn't take things off the map. This is something that we is well known now in the history of cartography. Spoiler alert, there are no canals on Mars. And of course, they weren't seeing any actual linear features. We, what we now think was happening is that these things that astronomers were laboring at the telescope to make out through their own vision and looking through the atmospheres, there's a lot of complex detail. It was kind of shimmery and they were optically resolving it into simple shapes. So circles, mm. dots, and lines. And so they were really seeing that. It's a psychological optical effect. But once they knew to look for it, as with anything, once you're told to look for it, you can see it. It's a self-confirming bias, basically. Exactly, right. You know, it's something that then everyone started seeing them. We got more and more. The question then wasn't like, do they exist on Mars? The question evolved over a couple decades into what does this mean that we have apparently an artificial network of canals on our neighboring planet? How did this inform popular perceptions of Mars and foster all the science fiction? I mean, I remember reading The Martian Chronicles by Ray Bradbury and the canals were a big feature of that. 
That's a great example of a book that's actually really about Earth, right? But yeah. uses Mars as a projection screen to work out some really important and deep ideas. Thanks for bringing that up too. I came into this project by focusing on the maps, but I also ended up reading a lot of the related science that was published in articles and books, plus all these popular reactions to Mars science, poetry, music, drama, literary writing, science fiction, even cartoons. It's a great episode of science popularization and how popular views feed into science and vice versa. In terms of how people dealt with that and made sense of it, you know, the question was, if there are artificial landscape constructions on Mars, then does that mean there's necessarily intelligent life on Mars? So there was this storm of speculation, scientific and popular, about these hypothetical beings on Mars. You know, there was a very famous American astronomer who emerged as a spokesman for the inhabited Mars hypothesis, as they called it, that's Percival Lowell. And he gave lectures up and down the East Coast. He wrote these popular books. He had an observatory in Arizona in great climatic condition, up at elevation. This is still there in Flagstaff, Lowell Observatory. And he was just really good at dis saying, anyone who disputes my interpretations is just not as good a scientist as me. You know, I've got this great observatory. He had a purpose-built telescope that was built to observe Mars with the, that exact focal length. And he was constantly observing Mars, adding canals to the map. And because he was so good at observing Mars, he was able to say he was the most legitimate interpreter of Mars. And so his theory was that Mars was a dried out planet. It had undergone pretty severe climate change and that the Martian beings who were hypothesized to be much more advanced than humans, that they had responded to that threat, the global climate change threat by creating a massive irrigation network that brought water seasonally from the polar ice caps, which he hypothesized, down to the equatorial regions. And they were using these massive canals, you know, and this irrigation network to keep themselves alive and to do agriculture and to have vegetation, which otherwise wouldn't be possible in those more arid regions. He was very interested in the, the geography and the historical geography of Arizona. And he's not from Arizona, he's actually from Boston. But once he did that, he started using the Arizona landscape as part of his understanding of what was probably happening on Mars. I think there's some larger points here about truth-telling in general and science and map-making really are two of our most important modern forms of truth-telling. I mean, ways of telling ourselves and others what is true about the world, right? And Lowell was excellent at using those two and saying, this is legitimacy. You can dispute me after you build a better observatory. He was very, very effective. And of course, these are two different things. You know, making observations and making sense of observations are different, but we tend to conflate them. And Lowell really was very successful um, in taking advantage of that. What resonance do you think that dynamic that you just described has for us today? We have to be always thinking about this as consumers of scientific truth and also as consumers of maps. I mean, I'll say that 
at University of New Mexico in my department in geography and environmental studies, you know, we're in the business of teaching students how to understand landscapes and human environment interactions, how to construct maps, how to do geospatial analysis, how to use digital technologies. These are skills and occupations of the future. But there are some really important lessons to looking back to historical episodes like this one on the Mars mapping. I mean, I think it reminds us how powerful maps are and that maps are not innocent. I mean, we have to think about that power and about that knowledge that gets so powerfully encoded into the map. Whose knowledge is it? What work does it do in the world? Is that work just? I feel like more and more now our teaching has to go beyond simply teaching technical skills or visual communication. We also have to teach about the ethics of map making, the, the politics of surveillance or the importance of data control and sovereignty. We live in a new world of mapping now. It obviously feels worlds away from these astronomers making fleeting observations night after night, adding them to maps by hand. I mean, now we have tools that allow us to process millions of spatial data points through machine learning and artificial intelligence. But we have to be really critical about how we handle this knowledge and wield this power. Looking back at episodes like this one might help us be more thoughtful about the kinds of mapping futures that we want to create. If you're just tuning in to KUNM, this is University Showcase, and I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm talking with Professor Maria Lane with the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies. She's also the author of the book Geographies of Mars, Seeing and Knowing the Red Planet. How did the power of cartography in representing the, quote, reality of Mars begin to wane? Photography was the key technological role. There was also, I would say, a bit of some social change as well. So let me start with that and then talk about how photography played a role. The inhabited Mars hypothesis was a utopian vision of what could happen specifically in the American West. So remember, by the late 1800s, the U.S. government has managed to grab control of millions of acres of indigenous land. Some of it went to the government as public lands. A lot of it went to private individuals who were usually white homesteaders. And the justification for taking that land violently and turning it over to white settlers was that land should be put in the right hands, that white people knew how to use land to build prosperity through you know, big farms, irrigation to maximize profits, etc. And this is a very racist idea that was based in a vision of modernity and this conquest of nature. And the American West being arid and semi-arid, you know, the result was a long history of dam building, canal digging, and engineering to remake these vast landscapes. And that very specific colonial vision of the American West is exactly the vision that Lowell was projecting onto the surface of Mars. These maps and books about Mars from the 1890s and the early 1900s are visions of the potential to remake indigenous landscapes into white settlement areas. The hypothetical Martians showed that this was possible through massive colonial irrigation. So how does the ideas about Mars start to wane? I would say that the political moment starts to change a little bit. You know, the thing that got everyone so excited about these Mars maps being like literally covered in geometric, perfectly straight canals. Well, it became obvious that we were not going to do that to the American West. 
right? You know, a lot of the assumptions that kind of flowed from that, that if we just let the engineers run all society and turned over our landscapes to, you know, bureaucrat control, that we'd have a perfect society. I think some of those ideas started to lose their luster. And that helped with this finally dropping off uh, from our ideas of Mars. The technological role of photography, this is really interesting because Lowell pioneers a new technology for representing Mars because he got some flack from his maps because he just added so many canals to the map every time. And the you know popular audiences love this and just lapped it up. But he had some astronomer colleagues who were like, what is this guy smoking? You know, like nobody is, <laughs> nobody is seeing all of these canals. Where is this coming from? So they're pushing back on him saying that he's just not being careful enough with his science. Well, in response to that, Lowell's trying to shore up his credibility. And so he mounts a photographic expedition to South America, to the Andes Mountains. They take a telescope on a boat over land. God, this sounds like some version of Fitzcarraldo or something. <laughs> I mean, it's just incredible to read this. And of course, you know, then he sold like, he had a bidding war for the magazines trying to get rights to publish this story because it was just so dramatic. But they pioneered this new technology. It's hard to get a photograph of something that's moving, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to get a long exposure to photograph something celestial that's in the sky in order to get enough light onto the negative of your photo. The longer you keep the shutter open, the thing moves and then it gets blurry. So it was Lowell's observatory that pioneered this new method for taking photographs uh, that wouldn't be blurry. Well, he got some really astounding photographs of Mars, but no one ever claimed to see in a single telescope view the network of canals. And so when it came to the photos, the photos showed kind of what you see through the telescope. He got remarkable detail as it was for a photograph, but it looked nothing like the maps. And that was a time when photography was really emerging as this technology of truth-telling, I would say, that began to rival the hand-drawn maps. So poor Lowell, in his effort to shore up his own credibility, actually is the one to take down his own maps. And after that, photographs do become much more, considered much more legitimate than any hand-drawn, uh, hand-rendered cartography. It's so interesting what you were saying about the projection of the vision of the American West and how that was shifting and how that affected our popular conception of Mars. I'm just going to nerd out for a minute. You actually see that in Ray Bradbury's book, right? Because mm -hmm. by the time he's writing, the vision that you get of Mars is this superior, pristine civilization and we come and colonize it and mess it up and kill everyone. Yeah, absolutely. The science fiction that comes out of this, none of it is about Mars. It's about Earth and about social relations and social hierarchies and colonial ambitions and colonial guilt. I'm not an expert on science fiction, but I have read a lot of it surrounding Mars specifically. And a lot of it's just really fascinating because you see there's a spectrum from this fiction where like American Civil War heroes are magically transported to Mars and they save everyone versus what you're saying the with Ray Bradbury where you know it's the imposition on this pure pristine culture that causes the downfall 
in a lot of the British science fiction, it was, and I think this is definitely like the colonial hangover being uh, played out in the British fiction, a lot of their fictional um, treatments of Mars have to do with, well, what if they came here? Mm. What if they took their revenge on us? You know, you think of War of the Worlds. It's an absolutely just like horrifying scenario of these amoral Martian beings coming to Earth and just seeing humans as a food source, just laying waste to the English countryside in this march on London. And I think all of that is us playing out our hopes and fears. I say us just meaning humans, but it's, it's really Western, white Americans and Europeans playing out their feelings and their uh, ideas about colonization and what it means to be in relationship with other cultures. And they always revert to ideas of hierarchy and, again, this idea of the, the morality of superior Westerners and, and what their responsibilities are with their higher knowledge. You've touched on this a lot, but I'll just end with asking you to talk about how this all relates to your work. Like I said, I'm not really a Mars scholar. Uh, I do historical geography of environmental knowledge and environmental management. And I'm really interested in the American West, and I'm interested in specifically the history of water management in New Mexico. And the point in time that I focus on is essentially the arrival of scientific water management. Like, where did that come from? Like, we had all these ways of managing water in the West, and, and New Mexico has this long history of multiple different kinds of technologies and social organization that goes along with it and governance as part of that social organization. And that gets displaced rudely, abruptly, in the early 1900s. And it's a product of kind of the conclusion of the territorial period in New Mexico, where in order to prove that the state is ready for citizenship, it has to engage in economic development and irrigation is a major part of this, right? So that's the stuff that I'm really interested in right now. You know, this book I'm working on is really just digging down into this time period where we became much more reliant on science, engineering, and technology, and how all of the modernist ideals that go along with that became a justification for taking control of water away from indigenous and Hispano peoples and giving it to white settlers. So, you know, that's the same thing that was being talked about in these Mars narratives. Expert water engineers are given uh, oversight of social organization. You know, on Mars, they thought it was a global system. These canals were so long, they thought they couldn't possibly have built these unless they had like global peace and they had just given over control to the smart people. That was literally how they talked about it. And we see really U.S. government policy trying to enact that exact same thing in the West and here in New Mexico. And so that's what I'm trying to trace out in my study of water management, looking at state engineers and hydrologists and how they, uh, you know, centralized permitting systems, how all that stuff comes into being and replaces forms of local management and what that means um, in terms of the, the colonial context of the American West. And do you have a title for your book yet? And when is it coming out? 
It is titled Fluid Geographies. It's going to be published by University of Chicago Press. And I'm just finishing up the last chapter right now before I send to them. This has been really fascinating. So I really appreciate you talking with me. Cool. No problem. Yeah, I enjoyed it. That was Professor Maria Lane. She's with UNM's Department of Geography and Environmental Studies and the author of the book Geographies of Mars, Seeing and Knowing the Red Planet. You can see a link to a short film from National Geographic featuring her work at KUNM.org. That's also where you can find all our past episodes. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thanks for listening to University Showcase. (music) 